Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Last Week in Brexit is brought to you by Pearson Solicitors and Financial Advisors, helping businesses and families for over 100 years. And Greater Manchester Chambers of Commerce. Connect. Communicate. Create. Hello and welcome to Last Week in Brexit, the podcast for Remainers and Brexiteers alike. Join me, Jonathan Beardmore, every week alongside Alex Davis and Christian Spence as we try and guide you through the choppy waters of Brexit. Hello and welcome to Last Week in Brexit. And in a week where Parliament can't literally keep its hands off each other, we've got two <laughs> gentlemen here who are going to discuss a subject which remains just as touchy as ever. Uh, we, we are all sat safely apart here, just for the record. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and with that, I can introduce both Alex Davis. Hi, Hi Alex. Hi, And Christian Spence. Hi. Uh, now, before we get into the last two weeks' worth of Brexit, because of course, um, Christian, you were... Well, where, where were you actually? Were I, I, I was north of the border in a, in a state that's also been wrestling with its own independence, uh, up in Edinburgh for the week. Yeah, glorious. Excellent. Um, before we get into all of our Brexit chat, uh, just remind everyone where we can find you on Twitter. I'm at GMCC underscore Alex. And I'm at GMCC underscore Christian. Right, well, like I said before, we have taken a one-week, hi- uh, one-week hiatus and we've come back and we have got the issue of... Is it 53 different impact studies around 58. what... 58. 58 different yes. impact studies of what Brexit might be doing to the, to the British, British economy and to those different sectors. So what can you tell me about these, well, these individual studies? First of all, what exactly are they? Uh, well, th- I can't tell you a great deal, which I think is the whole point, whole point of this story. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> because uh, we, we can't see them. Um, but apparently um, the government has been hard at work and has produced 58 individual impact studies, um, each one, I believe, on a different sector. Mm-hmm. Uh, supposedly they cover 88% of the British economy. Um, I suppose that they are looking at different Brexit outcomes, different scenarios, to try and judge what the uh, the economic impact would be on the country. Um, and the government is refusing to release any information whatsoever, um, refusing to release the studies themselves, refusing to tell us what they say, even to give us the headlines. Uh, they're, they're giving us nothing, um, and the pressure seems to be mounting on the government to yeah. uh, give us something at least. Exactly, because there's been a freedom of information request uh, put in, which Dexy have, uh, have turned down on the grounds that it would jeopardise our negotiating position to mm-hmm. publish them, uh, which seems a bit odd. There is a crowdfunded court case being raised at the moment. Now, these um, are the same people, aren't they? 
behind Gina Miller's first court case. Is that well, right? That's right, so, yes. Yeah. It's, it's, all, it's that sort of crowd. So they're trying to crowd from the case who to are, essentially take this to the High Court. Who are these people that keep on doing um, it? It does sound like a very kind of... Um, affluent hobby for rich people in London <laughs> it is I don't, I don't know whether he's rich but there's a there's a guy called uh, a QC called Jolly and Morm who's, uh, who's the one that's kind of leading on this one uh, I don't think he was directly involved in the Mina in the Mina Gina forgive me Mina in the Gina Miller case yeah. uh, but he was certainly followed it closely and he was sort of one of the big commentators who was who was keeping an eye on it um, so and there's kind of more and more you know sort of push from that Remain side saying, saying actually you know government is not being transparent I think there's you know there's a pretty good case in that Certainly, but I think not only have you know we've not seen these reports. Um, yeah. It appears that actually the Dexu ministers, not Secretary of State, the Dexu ministers admitted in committee last week or earlier this week uh, that they haven't read them either. And right. despite the fact they are what one of only or two rather of probably only twelve people in the country who's actually seen them at all. Yeah, I um, think I think this whole issue raises some interesting questions because. I mean, first, first of all, the reason that the government is refusing to release these things is because it says that it will undermine our negotiating position. Mm-hmm. But is it not true that the only way that that's possible is if they show that Brexit <laughs> is going to be a disaster? <laughs> that's a good point. Yeah. Um, because if they, if, they were, if they showed that everything was going to be okay, then surely they would strengthen our negotiating position. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you don't want to show um, your cards necessarily, do you? Uh, but well, there aren't any hidden cards. This is what I, I've come back to this with so many people <laughs> over the past twelve months. This is a game of perfect information. Yeah, both sides, because the EU is actually more capable than the Treasury, more capable than the UK government yeah. of doing the analysis of what what the impact on our sectors would be. Yeah, so there isn't, there are no cards to hide. Right. Let's just put the political stuff to one side a second. You two are both researchers of a type. <laughs> Thank you, yes. Yeah, <laughs> obvious researchers, you yeah. know. Um, what, do, what would you expect? I mean, if you guys at the, at the Chamber were going to do an impact study on a sector, what, what would you do? You'd, you'd start with kind of some of the, the normal ones. So, first of all, make sure you understand how they're operating now, how much they contribute to the economy, how many people they employ, geographic spread. If they are international traders, where do they trade with? Import side and export side. Uh, those are your, your sort of starting your game styles. Actually, employment. Actually, it's not only how many do they employ, but are they reliant on foreign workforce? Are they embedded in supply chains? Are those supply chains domestic or international? So it's those kind of framing up. What are the legs, essentially, on which each of these sectors sit? Um, then if you're playing the Brexit scenario, you've got to, of course, play the no-deal scenario. That's the first one you'd probably run. So all the tariffs. What are the tariff impact costs in both ways? Um, what are the... If you're assuming... You'll, you'll make some assumptions about what the state of migration might be mm-hmm. in a no-deal scenario, and you'll play that through. What are the potential impacts on... Uh, on the, the companies and the sectors in terms of employment, um, potential impacts on wage rates more generally throughout the economy, um, because, of course, the la- amount of labour uh, available, the supply falls considerably, so new demand pressures will kick in from other sectors. So you're looking at, it's, I mean, yeah, it's a cost-benefit analysis in many ways. It sounds like an system. enormous project. It's, it's a huge, huge piece of work. Just yeah. for instance, let's just take one sector, uh, agriculture. I mean, it's not a particularly large sector in the in the UK economy, but that must take a long, long time to come up with this stuff. 
Yeah, and agriculture is actually probably one of the single hardest ones to do because mm. ag- agriculture is the is one of the big sectors globally where where free trade agreements you often will exclude. Um, uh, you know, it's a, it's a highly protected area agriculture. So, so you know, the EU's common external tariff on things like beef imports is about fifty percent. Uh, there's some very very heavy heavy tariffs and agriculture stuff. So lots and lots of impacts. The agriculture industry, as I did, despite it being four percent of the UK economy, I think. Um, is broken down into tens of thousands of different commodity codes and tariff rates and quota tariff rates and all that would need to be played through. Yeah, it does seem like it's uh, one of these sectors which is uh, which gives us a disproportionate amount of trouble for the size that it actually is. Yeah, absolutely, because it, it, it's the one where actually you would see it's one of the few sectors where you would you would guaranteed see colossal impact very very quickly. Mm. That's you know the, the other big ones are services because they don't normally sit within. Within FTAs, um, manufactured goods, particularly on the supply side rather than capital goods, but we don't make capital goods on the whole anyway. So. Now, if you were to guess exactly what the point is in these impact studies, what would you say that, that is? Because no one can see them, some of the ministers haven't seen them. Why do them? Uh, it's, a, it's, a good, it's a good question. Um, this is something which I, I keep coming back to, which is that I, I think it's, it's kind of easy to plan for no deal so if you're a business or if you're the government and you're trying to figure out the impact upon a sector it's it's fairly easy to figure out what no deal means I mean that's if you're talking about a true no deal yeah, you know, yeah. we've, we've gone over before that there's multiple types of no negotiated deal negotiated no deal and no deal yeah m- most people yeah most people see no deal as actually being a bunch of deals but but anyway if, if, if you're a business at least that's a kind of that's a kind of line in the sand and you can say well if we have to face all the tariffs and blah 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 and we have no trade agreements we can figure out how much our exports will will cost then um, but I think planning for everything in between that is really 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 difficult um, and I think that's probably what the government is trying to do um, but I think if we look back to the the studies which were done pre-referendum um, you know we can all look back now and obviously all the levers point out that how, how just how horribly wrong they got everything mm. and it's because they were all so much based on so assumption based um, you know as, as to almost be meaningless and it's re- it really is a stab in the dark um, but the thing is, the point that Christian made before is that the EU will be doing all this as well, and it, it's kind of what they do, um, and they do this on a much, much larger scale than our own government does this stuff. Well, why is that? Because we've outsourced this kind of stuff to the EU in the past, and well, know, necess- well, I don't think we've necessarily outsourced it because, of course, we do, you know we do economic analyses you know relatively regularly in the UK, but not at this level of detail. But bodies like Eurostat. You know, and the date. You know, most of the data from the UK, which gets passed up to bodies like the OECD and the World Trade Organization and the IMF, essentially we pa- we pass our data over to Eurostat, and Eurostat passes up. I assume so Eurostat you, is basically like our office of national. Statistics. It is exactly that. So it's got all, all the comparator data for not only the countries, but down to what we call nuts three areas. So levels the size of Greater Manchester, in fact, smaller than Greater Manchester. Um, those are comparable at that size across all 28 member states. So all of that data is available and very easy to get at. I think the other thing that these might be doing, but on the basis that they call them impact assessments, makes me think they're probably not, is of course what we don't know. Because we, you know, the big question we always pose, the other thing we always say is actually no one's yet come up with a rationale as to why we are going through this. Yes. Yeah. Other than obviously we have a democratic mandate, will of the people, etc., etc. What is it the country wants to achieve? Now, as it goes into trade negotiations um, and starts to think about trade-offs, because this is an interesting bit, because none of the, none of the, you know, um, David Davis particularly, but none of the people have talked about trade-offs. 
we talk about deep and special relationship we talk about maintaining access to everything we've already got there's no one saying saying no one's sort of doing the analysis of saying look we're good we know the default outcome of leaving the European Union, even with a deep and special agreement, whatever that means, means essentially there will be a worse position between the UK and the EU than there is today. That's, yes. that's just a statement of obvious fact. So the question then is, okay, so which bits are you prepared to be quite a lot worse than today, and which bits do you think it's really important to maintain what you've got? This is where those kind of studies could be useful. Because what we've not done in this country, A, we've not had trade policy, so it's, it's not something we've ever thought about. B, we've never really... Well, no, we have had lots of different industrial strategies, but never comprehensively designed, never seriously thought through. So the question that government needs to be asking, and maybe these statements go some way towards answering it, um, is where is the UK's comparative advantage? You know, we go back to kind of core Ricardo and Adam Smith theory here, but actually... Where are the bits where you think the UK can compete most strongly mm. overseas? And where are the bits that you're happy to let go? Yeah. Because you are going to have to choose bits to let go. So, I mean, not, um, again, it's gone too much about agriculture, and I'm sorry to, sorry to any farmers that are listening, <laughs> but, I mean, that might be a classic example. Of, yeah, okay, well, you know, we will sacrifice farming for financial services. Potentially so, but these are really hard calls to make, because lots of people would say, well, you know, manufacturing's hugely important. Again, sorry to manufacturers, this isn't my policy or the Chamber's policy, it's just a thought experiment. Um, manufacturing is actually a small part of the UK economy. It's like mm. 9% of the UK economy overall. Um, actually, that's not relatively as important. Now, of course, actually, manufacturing is 60% of our exports. It's where almost all of our R&D investment comes from. It's where almost all the productivity gains come from. So there are all of those things to juggle. You know, if you want, if you're thinking in your trade agreement that you can't get all manufactured goods through the FTA and customs bit, then which bits of it do you want to keep? Mm. If you can't get all the services sector through, which bits are you prepared to keep? Financial services presumably is the top of the list because yeah. it's in, it's a huge cash cow for the UK economy. Um, but I suspect if you came back to those massive Brexit voting constituencies in the north of England and the northern cities and said the emerging places where you're doing really well in digital and creative, we're letting those go so we can keep the banks, you've got a very big political problem. And I said, I kind of hope really that's what some of these documents are talking about, but I don't know, well, I mean, nobody apparently knows whether they do. Yeah, I mean, that's an angle which I've never really thought of before, but... You know, if you want to look at another political divide, it would be saving bankers at the expense of shipbuilding on yeah, time or somewhere. Exactly, and there are I don't these. Know if they build anything on this time, but that was yeah, and there are these challenges. So yeah, people said, oh, we you know we want a good deep services. Once outside the EU, we can look at a big services agreement with uh, with the US. And you think, well, actually, from a from a negotiating trade point of view. What, of course, you're doing when you negotiate trade deals and lower tariffs and entry to markets is you're opening up competition. So, actually, if our primary target for a big services deal in the US, you have to raise the question, why are we trying to open borders to probably the only other economy on Earth that can out-compete us on services? Yes. Mm. yes that's I mean, is the only one that could actually seriously do top-end professional services better than we can? So is that really the one you want to open the market to? <laughs> yeah, that's actually a pretty strong point because we do keep on talking about the deal, the eventual deal with the United States. Yeah, yeah. there's all that. And this is your agriculture stuff saying, oh, we should drop all the tariff boundaries. Really? Do you want UK farmers to be in full-blown competition with, with Africa, 
South America where they can produce as high a quality food at considerably less cost. Because what that will do is just wipe out a chunk of UK agriculture. Yeah, I mean, in my mind, the answer is yes, yes. I, I, I mean, from I a consumer, and yeah. this is the, this is where it's hard to balance all this because actually, from a if you look at this from a consumer lens, that is the right thing to do. No. But the problem is, a lot of those consumers live in towns whose economy would be devastated by that policy. And you've got to balance all of these things. Now, I'm going to take you off on a little tangent here. Just on something which you've said before, and it's not Brexit-related, it's more economic, really. But I just want to... I just want to um, I'm answer this. You said the UK has done certain things with industrial strategy, but it's not something which we've done um, too recently. Mm. Um, is there any need for an industrial strategy? Is this not a very kind of you know, 60s, 70s way of, like, way of thinking? I think the challenge is, what do you mean by industrial strategy? I think that's it. And it's, I mean, you know, governments have stayed away from the phrase for a long time because the record in the UK is very, very poor. Um, you know, particularly post-war, uh, huge-scale nationalisations, very little investment. Investment becomes politicised. Um, we didn't do it very well. 1970s and three-day weeks and all of that. Um, the the, the Thatcher deindustrialisation reforms of the of the. I mean, it's, it's the Thatcher kind of ended them. A lot of the coal stuff, particularly, started under the under the previous Labour administration all of that kind of suggests we're not very good at it and what's the point but every other developed country takes this kind of stuff really very very seriously and of course I think there's an argument that the more globalised the world becomes the more interconnected the markets become the more you need to seriously think about where your advantages are and where you stick your cash. Mm. Now, the, the, the challenge of a big centralised state like the UK, where all spending is you know, pretty much all spending is determined by by Whitehall, is it's hard for them to get the the kind of regional feels about what's important and what's really good. Um, there's been little serious underpinning of UK industry, probably with the exception of financial services. Yeah. It's not been underpinned fiscally implicit guarantees, recession, all that kind of stuff aside. But in terms of policies that broadly favour the growth of those sort of sectors, um, you know, no one's really understood you know, actually what role does manufacturing play in regional economies. We understand it at the national level, but we don't understand particularly well how, you know, it's, as we say, it's 8 9% of you know, UK economy overall. It's significantly more in certain parts of the UK. Mm. Um, we don't understand that. We don't really understand how supply chains work and the impact is actually if you take a if you allow a very big employer to leave, um, so you know when we've seen you know, big pharmaceutical plants or you know, big BAE plants close, you think oh well, that's okay that's just the two thousand people at that one plant, but actually that establishment, an organisation we kind of call them wellhead companies, an organisation with a billion pound balance sheet, you know it drives and allows the creation of thousands and thousands of companies in supply chains who are kind of invisible because they're relatively small, they'll be deeply specialist in one tiny part of an aircraft carrier or an aeroplane, yeah. uh, and you don't see them. Um, but they said, you know, Germany, France particularly, but others, take this kind of stuff seriously. Where is your comparative advantage? Because in a big EU, never mind a big globalised world, other countries will do stuff that you do better than you. So where do you want to put the investment? What do you want to encourage to happen? I think that the previous um, industrial strategy document which the government released, we, we kind of looked it over um, and it, it's not, it isn't really any of those things, is it? It's no, not it's really not. It was, a bit, it was a big green paper to be fair, since it's early yeah, days, yeah. Um, but the, the Infrastructure Commission, the separate body that's been, uh, sorry, uh, the Industrial Strategy Commission, separate body that's been uh, drawn up to do all that, has published its final report today, which I've not yet read. Um, 
but I hope is it's but it's picked they kind of government guided the route down kind of four key sectors around uh, green energy battery technology autonomous vehicles advanced manufacturing healthcare I think is in the health sciences that's great but is that enough and you say I don't think we still really understand you know if government wants to it doesn't have to support fiscally if it wants to create an environment where certain sectors are going to do well which because you can't do it all that's my point earlier which I saw I I drifted off centralised government tries to end up spreading the jam very very thinly well there is I'm kind of glad you said a lot of the stuff you did because um, this this tangent's only going to grow and grow and it's just made me think of something um, you mentioned um, what do you call it? Well, uh, something head. So wellhead companies. Wellhead yeah, companies. Very large, yeah, producers. Now, uh, I think the Economist floated this uh, theory the other day. Um, feel free not to comment or to comment as much as you like, or we can move uh, move on to the next uh, thing on our agenda. But the small town of Preston, which isn't so far away from us, is apparently ex- experimenting with a post-Brexit style economy. Are you guys aware of this? No. Vaguely. Uh, I, I, remember, I read the, the Economist article um, you're talking about. Regarding um, anchor institutions and, you know, basically, I guess, wellhead um, it's, organizations. It's exactly that. And it's something that's, that's in the last sort of six or 12 months has come up to the fore in economic development and the, trying to understand the role of institutions in local economies. Yeah. Um, and that actually big anchor institutions, be they public or private sector, universities often highlighted, particularly on the public sector side, or very large sector large private sector employers have a role to play which is bigger than their own direct impact on the economy in terms of their own employment and their own yeah, I think that's their own profitability um, and it's, it's an interesting theory which is gaining a huge amount of ground there's quite a lot of research in the universities going on into this um, at the moment but yes there's this sort of experiment I think did the Economist article describe it as like a Corbynite town as yes, well as part it, of it exactly it was a Corbynomics that's um, it in this, in this I, small area and I don't think it's certainly for those you know for those listeners who remember kind of the Corbynomics concept when he, when he became leader it's not along that side but it is about a more if not in, I think interventionist state is too strong a word because it, it pictures things in people's minds which I don't particularly regional, want to go I guess it's regional protectionism it's, I, it's well there's a little bit of that I think the protectionism is going too far but I think there's a risk of it so you know for, for the listeners there's you know, an increasing focus these days around local procurement so that if a local authority purchases, it wants to try and purchase from the local area and only from local companies. Actually, and that's that's worthy. And actually, there's a lot of studies show there are big net benefits out of that. It's the problem is is how much do you focus on enforcing that? Mm. Because I can talk to lots of Greater Manchester companies and our members who say, yeah, we think when you know the combined authority procures, it should be you know exclusive to Greater Manchester companies. But then so I say, oh, so you're perfectly happy then to not be allowed to bid for public contracts anywhere else in the UK if everyone else does the same rule? Yes. So it's sort of like, you know, like in everything with policy, there's a scale, and you've got to make sure you don't end and up at either either end of it, but yeah. somewhere in between. It's sort of what extent do you kind of. Do you enforce it? Yes, you're happy for the builder to be from Preston, but you have, are you happy for the builder to buy timber that isn't from Preston? Yes, I think one on, hopes so. Yes, on, uh, on. <laughs> Preston yeah. not being a, a huge uh, forested uh, uh, forested producer. Um, so it's, I think it's those kind of things. It's thinking that actually, and I think this is important. You know, local government has been disenfranchised in the UK for, I mean, arguably seventy or eighty years uh, in terms of what it's able to do. 
Um, the devolution agenda is starting to focus minds a little bit more about where local government can be more useful. In t- it just in terms of some of this stuff, it's a local industrial strategy essentially. I mean, it's actually what do you want your area to be? Where are its strengths? How can we encourage those things? Yeah, build some roads, clear up the rubbish. I'd be fairly happy with that. Actually. Yeah, but of course the point is, is mostly local authorities don't have the control to do that, mm. um, even though they do it. It's in, the, it's in their realm to, to provide it. The amount of actual control they have to go and build a new road is almost zero. Yeah. Well, we'll move on from um, the economics of Preston, just in <laughs> case you weren't interested in, uh, in, in, in the northwest area. Um, we'll move this on, shall we, to um, David Davis and talking about various votes and when they can happen and when they can't happen. Who wants to lead off on this? Uh, this, was, this is a pretty simple one, really. This is just a, a mistake that David Davis made. I don't think it was. He realised it was a mistake at the time. Um, he, he was in front of the Treasury Select Committee and suggested that the deal could go right down to the wire, down to the last minute of the last day. I guess March 29th, uh, 2019. Um, and this caused loads of people to panic. Um, and well, because basically he said this means that the, 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 the Parliament's vote yeah. on the deal might actually yeah. only come after the deal has been done. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so, I mean, it, in, as we said before, in, in terms of the law, we exit the EU at midnight on the 29th of March 2019. Um, so what David Davis says doesn't make a lot of sense uh, when you put it up against things that the government have said before, you know, about ensuring that Parliament has a vote. Um, and then number 10, I think, very quickly released a statement saying, no, no, this is, this is totally wrong and there will be a parliamentary vote. Um, I think David Davis also mentioned again this idea of a meaningful vote, making sure that there'll be a meaningful vote on the final deal, which still is meaningless um, yeah. in, in my in my eyes. I, right. Okay. So, what kind of votes can the government offer Parliament? Are there are, are there different different type, types of votes? Um, uh, go one step further with your question. <laughs> right. Okay. So it, it's it's a it's a vote in Parliament, but. The, the problem for me is that there has there, there is no alternative on the table essentially. Yeah. So so th- from what we know thus far, we will negotiate a deal, um, hopefully with six months to spare, so that they can do the ratification on their side and it can go through the parliament on our side. But the problem is that it will be a vote for a deal, and the only alternative is no deal that as, as far as my understanding yeah and that's it and it's it's all so, this you know we talked about this I think in podcast one or two um, yeah. which is this is not a normal negotiation round where if you can't agree on the deal everything reverts to the status quo but, but, that's but, the bit that's different but it is it is isn't it because you can revoke the deal well ah that's it yeah. I mean you can rev- you can revoke the deal you can revoke the article 50 imagine the, the, um, big, the big the big problem is that we would have to get some sort of guarantee that alternative is on the table I think from the EU so we would need to basically ask for some written yeah. written promise that there is an alternative here if we, if we don't vote for the deal but then I can't see the government ever wanting to do that because the government is still you know has, we have to keep no deal on the table because of the you know it will undermine our negotiating position if we don't we can't release the impact studies because it will undermine the negotiating position if we don't and then is the government really going to negotiate a deal and then put the option of us staying back in on the table? No, it, it feels unlikely from the narrative at the moment. But is this point, is, it, you know, is this a meaningful vote? In reality, it's not. On its own, as an event on its own, it's not. Because you know, we come back to the phrase we've used several times. It is now a matter at law that the UK leaves the European Union on the 29th of March 2019. Mm-hmm. Parliament can vote until it is blue in the face. It, we go. are leaving on the 29th. That is now the default position. So, 
So if they say, we don't like this deal, we still leave on the 29th of March, but we leave with no deal. Could we (laughs) see a Lisbon (coughs) Treaty-style... style scenario here and I'm thinking, I think it was the Lisbon Treaty with Ireland where they said no we're not doing this and then three weeks later they came back well, it three weeks, but then they yep. came back with another deal and then presumably they'd have carried on coming back with deals until a deal was struck yeah and I think Denmark voted down and France voted Lisbon down as well uh, and they all had another go um, so I mean potentially but it's I don't know whether the EU is up for the point is, of course, the EU was up for the fight to get Lisbon through. This mm. is its big constitutional reform, which actually you know, enshrines all the treaties, all the other treaties that have happened before, together into one. Uh, it formulates the, you know, the constitution much more closer to kind of, you know, flag and country concept and all of that. So it had a huge desire to get that through. I don't know how strong the desire of the EU is to keep this Brexit thing dragging on. Hmm. How desperate is it? If if things are looking ropey in you know October next year, is it up for saying oh, okay, yeah, let's you know, we'll just keep going and keep trying? Yeah, I, I think for the for the vote to be meaningful and for it to be what people want this vote to be, we have to change what the default position is. Yes, and that's exactly it. Well, and put. I, I I don't know if the EU will offer to extend the negotiating period, or they'll offer you know that we will have another go at it, or yeah, anything like that in my eyes they will, the only offer will probably be that you're not going to do it that you're not going to leave yeah um, because because we, ha- we have to in in, ma- in in legal terms change that default position um, and, I, and I don't see why they would offer us anything else yeah which we've got to that point anyway and, and certainly the strength is you know the EU's negotiating position here could be is actually very very strong at this point because there are two so there are essentially two options if you don't if we if we don't like the deal and we seriously don't want to go ahead with that or no deal you've got extension of the article 50 negotiating period which lies entirely in the EU's hands yeah. because you need a 20 you need a, you need a 100% majority 100% vote so all 28 member states um, would have to vote in favor of that and the other option is the UK unilaterally revokes its Article 50 notification. Now, we've no legal ruling on whether that is possible, but, that but most, that most of the word, legal so. word seems to suggest that mm-hmm. you could do it and that the EU would accept it if we did. So the EU's position here can be, we've got to this deal on the table. If you don't like it, the ball is back in your court. We've had that phrase from Michel Barnier yeah. before. Essentially, if you don't like this deal, your only option now mm-hmm. is to revoke. Yeah. Or it's no deal. Um, now that's a very very strong position uh, for the EU because again I've always come back to the unanimity stuff on the EU 27 I can imagine the European Commission and Germany, France, Netherlands, Belgium Denmark, these people who are closely integrated with the UK trade um, holding out to say actually we really want to make, we don't want this to go off the edge of a cliff once you start to go out to Poland and Bulgaria and Romania and the you know the the more you know the f- further eastern states the more recent accession states, what's in it for them? Because mm, you, you need unanimity. Yeah. That's the thing. You know, there's just... some there's some odd politics going on in Poland uh, at the moment with their relationship with the EU. Some odd politics going on in other Eastern European states so, within their own tensions of their own legal structures and, and frictions with the European mm-hmm. Union. Um, so I, I guess the danger is, and this is exactly what I'm doing now, is we're looking at it through the prism of UK relationship with Poland, UK relationship with Bulgaria. Actually, the prism is Poland's relationship with Europe. Potentially, yeah. Are, do they want to continue? What's in it for them? Um, 
how can they use Bre- the Brexit negotiations to leverage Germany's trade with, yeah, with, with the UK for whatever domestic stuff yeah, they're Yeah, because they're holding an incredibly powerful tool, because it's not just necessarily, you know, I, I kind of advocated this argument from it's an ability for, you know, European state, whichever, to kind of hold a stick against the UK in all of this. Actually, as you point out, it's a very good opportunity to hold a stick just against the EU generally. Yeah. If you, France, Germany, Netherlands, don't want to see, because they would be hugely disrupted by, by no deal, um, then we would like to see you offer us. <laughs> yes, exactly. There's all that gameplay within the EU. Um, we, and it's the you know, We've talked to this before, you know, that we, we, almost no commentator in the UK is looking at this through anything other than the UK's eyes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm just forgetting that. that there's 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 27 other countries out there at st- with stuff at stake here. Yeah, we, we're talking about treaties, and this this goes back to why Article 50 is so not fit for purpose. Yeah, why, it's terribly, terribly, and, and why, why we were so hasty to trigger it. Um, because Brexit could have been done through tri- a new treaty. It could have been mm-hmm. done through tre- treaty change. It could have been done through many other means, which would have been, you know, well, it wouldn't it wouldn't have tied us into this kind of time limited negotiation. It wouldn't have created this whole unanimous vote, 27 versus us scenario. It would have, you know, it would have, it probably would have taken 10 to 15 years. But, you know, it would have been a lot less dangerous um, for us anyway. Well, apparently, um, the guy, I'm, I'm just looking for the guy's name now. I've actually got his name on my, um, on my, um, on my phone. But apparently it was designed in such a way because they never wanted to implement exactly, They never yeah. wanted yeah. to implement it. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. That's it. Yeah, I mean, as a piece of law, it's shocking. It's you know, it was it's never it's not been thought through in terms of the implications of what happens if somebody uses it. And ironically, mm. it was um, written by a British lawmaker. It was indeed. Yeah. I mean, so what we should have done is said, Article Fifty is not fit for purpose. Let's write up a new treaty which you know allows yeah. this thing to happen in a in an organised way. Yeah, um, I guess that's like um, organising your wedding vows to include uh, you know divorce proceedings. Yeah, yeah. So. Um, We'll just move on from the... the well, to be fair, we, we use them. We call them prenuptial agreements. <laughs> yeah, um, that's the <laughs> um, Lord, um, Lord Price. Who, who is Lord Price? He's a former trade minister. He is indeed, yes. He stepped um, down a little while ago. Uh, and this was only a little one, really, um, that got brought up in... Liam Fox was again in front of a select committee today, I think. Um, so this guy, Lord Price, uh, had a bit of a spat on Twitter with some people, and he said that... Over the past year, he had visited the 60 countries with which the EU currently has a trade deal, and that all these countries had agreed to roll those trade deals over yeah. uh, oh, to, oh, the, to the UK. Um, oh, open and shut case, then, eh? Yeah. 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 Well, well <laughs> of course, this, this question got asked of Liam Fox in the, in the Select Committee, and he didn't go that far. He said that basically they said that they would like for there to be ongoing agreements but they, there was no commitment um, and then there was another I think is, is it Lord Falconer was it another, mm-hmm. yeah another guy sitting next to Liam Fox in the Treasury Select Committee who said he's, he's been very close to negotiations before and very often what one country says it wants today is different to what they'll say they want tomorrow and yeah. so basically no there's absolutely no guarantee of this whatsoever um, so do you think Lord Price just got a little bit heated in the moment on Twitter, as people tend to do when it comes to Brexit and Twitter? I, I, yeah, I think it's likely. And the thing is, we've always had this view, um, which it just seems unlike... It's, it's actually kind of daft for all of those other third countries mm. to say, yeah, we'll just take it as it is, it's fine, it's no problem. Yeah. Because it's just not in their interest to do that. Because 
again, you know, the UK is that it's you know think about you know, the thing about what we talked about about what preferential trade deals are and why countries do them. Um, we're saying, oh, we just want to roll over the terms we've already got with South Korea, and South Korea says, yeah, but the, your market's smaller now. We want better terms from you. Yeah, because uh, I, because well, people say, oh, well, but doesn't that what happens to South Korea if no if you know if we fall out? It's like yeah, but is the UK if South Korea turns around at the last point and says, all right, we'll keep the status quo? The UK is not going to say no. Yeah, and there, there, are, there are things. <laughs> yeah, there, there are things in these trade deals which won't work at all if we bring them over as, as they are. So they're all going to have to be renegotiated in, in some respects. I mean, the, the example I saw was, was South Korea. I mean, I know it's, it's a tiny, a tiny portion of our trade, but there is a fifty-five percent rules of origin stipulation in that agreement, meaning that any goods which the EU trades with uh, South Korea. Fifty-five percent of the goods have to come from within the EU, essentially. So if, if we roll, if we roll that over, if we roll that over to us, we, yeah. there are no goods that we can sell to South Korea from which. No, all, no that's it. we would never capture. We would never capture. And rules of origin, it's it's a bit actually. We've not talked a l- much about here, but it's a, such a critical part of international trade yeah. and, the, and the way you know you access trade agreements to the point where actually you know, huge amounts of trade between countries that have preferential trade agreements doesn't bother to try and access the better or zero tariffs you get because actually trying to comply with the rules of origin is so expensive. It's actually not worth it. And you just pay the tariffs anyway. I, I have a feeling that this, is, this conversation is going to end up with uh, chlorinated chicken and through lemons. It's, I mean, they're, they're, they're two just great simple examples yeah. of, of the, the kind of things you open Liam up in Fox has been talking about, it's, it's hit the headlines again today, chlorinated chicken. Oh, Liam, uh, Liam Fox uh, has, was talking it? about chlorinated chicken in, in the select committee today, yeah. And again, totally missing the point, just going... There's no reason why it's unhealthy to eat chlorinated chicken. And but we're just that's going, not the that's, point. That's See, not I, the point. <laughs> I can expect better from my, from my trade minister now, because we use the ex- example of chlorinated chicken as, you know, the stumbling block for trade. Yeah. I don't think we should still be talking about uh, whether you can eat chlorinated chicken or not. Yes. So, okay, we'll... Um, but it's not about eating it. Yeah. It's about what, exactly. what are the implications of that coming into borders with other trade deals you may have with other people. Yeah. Yeah. If, if, if we let chlorinated chicken in, we can't have a frictionless border with the EU. So, basically. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, that's enough to talk about fox among the, fox among the chickens. Um, now, as these things... That's a very good line, actually. <laughs> um, now, as these things tend to... Uh, so, as things tend to um, happen in the um, in uh, in these sort of sort of circumstances, we have kind of found an example of what a true no deal would deal would look like. And what I'm referring to is the situation of the the Catalonians and Catalan independence. Now, Catalan isn't in, isn't independent, but it has given us a really good example of what could happen in the exa- in the event of a cliff face deal or no deal as the point may be yeah I th- it's, as, I said, as you said it's not a great parallel in the sense that you know the, the point is according to constitutional law um, Catalonia has not declared independence um, it is clearly in breach of the Spanish constitution and you know the the, the Catalonian uh, prime minister president uh, has, has, has shown great face in in the outcome of that by fleeing for asylum in Belgium not that you can have asylum in Belgium because they're also in the EU uh, yeah, so that I mean, doesn't, he's really that doesn't really work um, so, but I think the analogy is good in terms of some of the pushback we tend to get from people particularly on the leave side who say look you know, you, you've been talking for years you've been talking since the referendum is all, that business is going to leave business is going to pack up and go um, nobody's gone yet you know it's, it's all a myth 
And we'll say, well, fine, but don't forget, moving, massive moving, actually relocating, actually reorganising your supply chains is phenomenally expensive mm. and incredibly difficult. And no country, no company, I beg your pardon, is going to do that unless they really have to. Until it's clear that they don't have an option to invoke the emergency plans, um, and the great example, as you see, of what happens here is the, is the Catalonian story. So you know, we we've had, of course, ructions about potential independence in Catalonia for frankly as long as anyone can remember. Um, it all became a bit more heated two three months ago. We got the referendum date announced. Companies don't do anything. You get the vote. Um, which of course we know we know was never going to be recognised a because it's against the constitution for you to call it b it was chaos not everywhere got their voting slips you know the police were dragging people out of voting so it was clearly never going to be validated nobody did anything um, they talk about you know he they say we think this is a valid reason we look to call independence at some point shortly nothing happens and I think it was the Wednesday of the week or the Thursday uh, of the week they said. I, we're going to be announcing, we're going to be declaring independence unilaterally tomorrow. And by the end of that day, all the, made, all the Catalonian registered banks had moved their headquarters to Madrid. Yeah, it's... And since then, 10,000 companies have left Catalonia. Now, that will mostly be nothing more than brass plates moving. You know, those employees will still be in the same places. Some, I'm sure, there will be some movement at the edges. Most of that's a brass plate relocation. Um, but that's a brass plate relocation, which means that if, in a bizarre, freaky world, the EU suddenly says, actually, you know what, we recognise you as an independent state, on that day, Catalonia is outside of the EU, which means it doesn't have free capital movement between Catalonia and mainland Spain, which means all of the cash that's got in those banks is now offshore, um, and you now come under international trading rules. Uh, now, of course, Catalonia wouldn't have any treaties with you at that point, so there would be no rules for the movement of, mo- of money cross-border. Um, there would be no rules for the movement of people cross-border uh, and goods. It would be in the same position as the UK would be in a full no-deal. Um, but what you do see is those companies have moved. Yeah, I mean, that's um, the one thing which I took from this is the staggering you know, swiftness and speed. Yeah, which is about we're off. Yeah, because we've we've no choice. If this actually goes through, with with you know we're stuffed. We're utterly stuffed. Therefore, we've got to take the protective. And, and the first stage will just be move the brass plaque. But the point is, once you've moved it, we now know Catalonia is not going to become independent. Mm. But those brass plaques aren't moving back. No, no, that's very important. <laughs> and the other thing that I'd point out as um, as well, I mean, the Catalonian independence thing, it's not out of the blue if, you, if you're Catalonian. Mm-hmm. But the whole Brexit process, companies have had a lot a lot more time to plan for this. Yes, they, they absolutely. Don't, they have planned for it, and they're in a far, far greater stage of planning than they were in Barcelona. Mm. I think people got a rather rude, rude awakening. Yeah, I say, and it raises some interesting kind of personal level issues. You say companies have been thinking about that, but I would think actually, you know, for for those Brits who have who have family, who have holiday homes, have you got capital assets in Catalonia? Have you thought about this? You know, I thought about buying not, in Catalonia over the last few mm, weeks. But it's, the, it's those kind of considerations. You know, so the no deal is, of course, it's a big deal for big global companies with integrated supply chains. Um, but actually, there are lots of UK families who have relatives, capital, pension flows. Yeah. Um, out to relatives, particularly in Spain, but of course in France, bits of Italy. Um, you know, the, this, is a, this is a thing which you need to think about in the event of no deal. Um, is there anything else that we need to cover, gents, before we wrap this up for the evening? Uh, I think there's probably just adding adding on to that. There was the the announcements coming from the Bank of England. Um, yes, there was. It, so it, essentially, it, it's the same. It's the same thing. Um, a 
an analyst from the Bank of England suggested that there are 10,000 jobs would be lost um, in the city on day one uh, under a no-deal situation. Um, he's talking about a no-deal situation specifically for financial services. Uh, and then the Bank of England, I think, more widely came out that, and said that they thought that 75,000 jobs were, were at risk in London if there was no specific financial services deal. Um, so, you know, they're, they're doing the analysis as well. I mean, we're going, we're going back to here, the, the government's mm-hmm. doing its analysis and the fact that everyone else is also doing analysis, so all this stuff is coming out anyway. Um, but, of course, on, on the other side, uh, the government apparently is going to need to recruit 30,000 more people. Yep, um, 5,000 in customs alone. Yeah, it's a, it's a big recruitment to drive. One wonders where they're going to hire them from, but perhaps they'll just hire the financial services people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, all the guys have been released over you know, the course of austerity. It yeah. does seem like a massive uh, undoing of... Uh, of um, all the austerity, which is all yeah, well, well, I think there's some more interesting regional stuff in place there because there's a there's a good bit of uh, research published by um, uh, a little colleague this week looking at the the change in public sector employment mm. since the uh, since the austerity measures uh, started to kick in, and actually, basically all of the headcount loss is in local government. Yes. Civil services is exactly the same, if not slightly larger now uh, than it was in 2008. So actually, all of the re-recruitment for the Brexit-related stuff is also going to be civil service. It's also all going to be based in London. So what you're seeing is actually what the austerity has done, what that so what that kind of reshift has done, essentially, is take employment out of the regions. That's fascinating. But continue to increase it in London. So potentially, you can you're actually exacerbating one of the big drivers for the Brexit vote in the first place, which was massive regional disparity between the capital and the rest of the country. Wow, that's, um, um, is that bit of research available to members? Or? Uh, it's, it's, I'll share it up on my Twitter feed, certainly if I've not already done it, but it's just public RNS data which just shows the breakdown between uh, between uh, local government and civil service uh, employment. That is very interesting. Right, well, um, let's finish this off. Um, remind us again where we can find you on Twitter. I'm at GMCC underscore Alex. And at GMCC underscore Christian. Fantastic. Right. Well, until next week, we'll give you some more Brexit-based news. Goodbye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.